everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Emma. And I'm Tutu Jarasati. And today we're sitting down with Kevin Merida. Kevin Merida currently serves as the executive editor at the Los Angeles Times. He took the helm of the largest news gathering organization in the West in June 2021 and oversees the newsroom as well as Times Community News and Los Angeles Times in Espanol. Previously, Merida was the senior vice president at ESPN and editor-in-chief of The Undefeated, a multimedia platform that explores the intersections of race, sports, and culture. Prior to that, he was at The Washington Post for 22 years, working as a reporter, columnist, and managing editor. His resume also includes stints as a reporter and an editor at the Dallas Morning News and as a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal. He is also a member of the Pulitzer Prize Board and serves as a trustee of Boston University. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It is simply a privilege to speak with you. Thank you. So, Kevin, you were born in Kansas and spent your childhood in Washington, D.C. How would you describe your journey growing up there? What or who has impacted you the most in that community? Oh, wow. I mean, I I think we all uh, benefit from being part of some place, right? And, you know, just if if there are any basketball fans out there, there are a lot of people. Kevin Durant, who's one of the best basketball players in the world, grew up in in our community. Um, You're always proud of the place you come from. It was a very close-knit community. I was a product of busing, and that greatly influenced – how I thought about things, um, you know, bus from our neighborhood school uh, far away and had to integrate a white school coming from an all-black neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I delivered the paper, you know, uh, newspaper when I was a kid, my father. Um, and so that was my first introduction to, to journalism. I read the great Shirley Povich, who's a, a longtime columnist, legendary sports columnist. And he was probably the first writer I read in a newspaper. And so there were a lot of influences growing up there. So with you delivering newspapers and seeing the news and speaking a little bit about your experience at Boston University and then later at UC Berkeley with the program you did with them, how did that educational experience help you in your pursuit of journalism? And what skills do you take from that time today? Well, I went to school, and this will date me, in the post-Watergate era. So... Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, uh, essentially investigating the presidency and ended up leading to the resignation of uh, President Nixon. That greatly influenced me. Investigative reporting was something I wanted to do uh, initially, and that's that was early on in my career is what the, the kind of reporting I pursued. Uh, Boston University, I grew up there. Um, yeah. I didn't grow up there, but I did grow up there. Actually, as, as, a, as a student journalist, we, a group of us founded a, a, a black student newspaper on, on campus, and it was a very tense time r- racially in Boston, and I think that shaped uh, a lot of, of my uh, formative years as a, as a student journalist. And, um, but it was a great education. It was an exciting time to, to be studying journalism. And... Um, and so uh, leaving there, as you alluded, I went to uh, a summer program uh, in Berkeley, and that was like a summer boot camp. And we put out a, a weekly newspaper, learned from some of the best, lots of journalists, professional journalists of, of stature came in and 
and taught and acted as editors. And so uh, uh, that and that helped propel me to to a job at the Milwaukee Journal, which is my first job out of college. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so after college, what was the first major news event you covered and what was that like? Wow. Um, I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't a legendary news event. It was probably something because I, I was working in a a weekly section called uh, it was a city zone section. So uh, the newspaper published all of these different weekly sections different parts of uh, Milwaukee, and I work for one of them. But I was constantly trying to, on my own, do investigative reporting on the side, on my own time. And I think the biggest uh, break or biggest story idea, there was a a drug ring that was operating in in Milwaukee and and peddling some new kind of drugs called Tees and Blues that were... Now we have all... We have fentanyl. We have all of these kind of manufactured drugs, but this was an alternative to heroin. And there was there was a drug gangs operating uh, out of Milwaukee and they were connected to Chicago. And I kind of broke that story and it was a running kind of story and lots of in- investigative dimensions to it. And that was really the first big story I did uh, really as a, as a young journalist. So in regards to that first story that you kind of broke, what did it feel like when you felt like you had your first lead kind of in a sense? Do you remember that feeling when you kind of felt like you were really like a reporter? I don't know if that makes sense. but Yeah, no, these are, these are really great questions. Um, you know, I think you're always trying to – I think when you're young, you're, you're hungry, you're excited, you, you've left college, you're getting a chance to do it professionally – you're around a lot of people that you're learning from, and you're trying to get to some place. You, you see all these other people. We had a lot of distinguished journalists in that newsroom, and people went on to great glory, like Nina Bernstein's at the New York Times now. Walter Fee was a big investigative reporter and went to Newsday, and lots of lots of other people. And and so when you you first get your big story, it's that adrenaline rush that it's almost like a validation that you can do it. You know, and that you, you know, you you have the potential to be successful in the business. You never know. You know, you never know if you're going to how good you can become. You know, you have a lot of ambitions. I think when you're young, you're always in a hurry, too. You know, and that's one of the things I always caution students is uh, to take your time, learn everything along the way. Don't be in such a hurry. And but, you know, I had a lot of ambitions and I, I thought, you know, I thought I was going to be a syndicated columnist for like five years. I remember writing that down, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking like when you think about it, that, that was crazy. But um, we always want to go fast. But but I just remember that it was a great time being in Milwaukee. Uh, I was there for three and a half years and it was it was a really great time in my career. Yeah, because during your career, you have a tendency to tackle difficult subjects that I think a lot of people don't want to. And I we really admire you for that because usually that's the topics that are most important to talk about. But sometimes this difficulty can arise because the reporter that's reporting on the story maybe doesn't identify with the community that they are writing about, right? Sometimes the difficulty in understanding the subject can come from a lack of common identity. So do you have advice for journalists that are maybe wanting to talk about issues that face communities that they're maybe not a part of and how to handle that in a way that represents the community best and uplifts them? Yeah, you you all are... uh 
doing something right here at Claremont McKenna because you're asking some great questions. So, so uh, uh, I think it's really, I think the best way is to, to not assume, right? I think journalism, you, you go into stories, don't go in with your assumptions. You know, it's, all, it's always great to have a thought, you know, but then you got to explore it. You know, you got to research it. You you got to talk to people. You you've got to be try to be sensitive. You try to look at all sides of a coin, uh, as many sides as you can look at, and uh, and so I always think learn from others. And so walk gingerly, particularly in in places where you don't know. You know, it's not your background, and that can be place, religion. Uh, it can be uh, gender. It can be any dimension, right? Um, and and even if you know, hey, I'm I'm African American, but I know there's more than one way to be be black. So don't even come into assumptions thinking that you know everything uh, about any experience um, that's a human experience. So, but I've always thought, like as a journalist, I've always wanted to take on difficult subjects like that. And I encourage, I think the best journalists, I tell them, take on the hardest topics. And so uh, David Dreyer, I'm going to tell our family who's sitting sitting in our studio with us, you know, who's a, a distinguished uh, congressman and gone on to do other, other great things. Um, you know, I, I think he will remember this. I mean, you know, George W. Bush's intellect, big question when he was running for president. And... People made fun of him and all of the, the the late night talk show jokes and everything and and but it became a serious topic, you know, as 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 he was pursuing a nomination. And I thought I wanted to take it on, you know, and and treat it seriously, right? Because that was a looming question about was he fit to be president? He's smart enough to be president. So trying to find a way in to take the subject seriously, not mock it, but really treat it, and and it ended up. Uh, talking to him, doing an interview, but really looking at the whole notion of what does intellect mean, you know, and what, how do we come to our thoughts about who's smart, you know. And so there's lots of ways to take on things. Uh, Strom Thurmond at, at 98 years old in the U.S. Senate, not quite all there and how that's working. Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, and his relationship with, with his own race and his own community, uh, Lots of topics I've taken on, you know, they're difficult subjects. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton as the as the wife, not the the brilliant Hillary Clinton, but as the wife of Bill, the president, and 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 what that relationship was like. So I, I think anything that is occupying anybody's attention, you know, uh, murders in community, going in to find, going in and 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 dissecting a. Uh, a killing and how it impacted a community and really going in to, to look at that in a, in a micro way. Um, I'm always up for the most difficult challenges. So um, we were talking a lot about like how to investigate and how to like write a story. So the role of storytelling is uh, a huge part in journalism. Um, in regards to your tenure at ESPN, how does storytelling differ from your current work at the LA Times? Because it's kind of different forms of media. Yeah. Well, look, um, ESPN was gr great, right? You're you're in the 
the biggest, uh, the world's largest, you know, sports media company, and 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 really the 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 best, the gold standard for that. I came there to start essentially a a digital startup inside a big company. And so you're inside of ESPN, which is a huge company. We started something called The Undefeated, the focus on race, sports, and culture. We're also inside ESPN, we're inside the Walt Disney Company, which is a huge global entertainment uh, company. So the most interesting thing about it is it's like a playground of storytelling. Like there's so many different platforms. There's no kind of storytelling that you can't do because you know, there's a news network, ABC is there, and there's, and ESPN has many studio shows, and you can do town halls and specials, and, and, and we can do, do things and put them on Disney Plus and on ESPN Plus. And, and so, you know, I really thought about, uh, when we started The Undefeated, we talked about it, it being content agnostic. And so we weren't going to be limited, you know, to, we had our daily platform, and it was a website, but we did, we did poetry. We we did our own. We did original music. We did. Uh, we ended up creating a, a a essentially a record label inside the Disney Music Group. We we did a couple of children books based on bestsellers and based on our, our content. We did uh, all kinds of things, town halls, and uh, at, at lots of different places. So. I think it. I think it. What it just reminds you is that um, is there's lots of ways to reach audiences, and and that's the lesson for all media. I, I, that's the media ecosystem we are in now. Is that you know you, you can reach people in different ways. We we obviously have lots of social platforms, um, and part of coming to L.A. Times was I wanted to take that experience that I had in inside the Walt Disney Company. And, and working with the undefeated and, and ESPN and see if I could bring some of that to a really traditional newspaper. You know, it's, it's, it's been great 141 years. So if you're, if you're around 141 years, then you, you've done something, you know, any company. And so, uh, but, you know, we wanted to, to last another 141 years long after I'm gone. So you gotta keep evolving it. And, and it can't simply be a newspaper. So, a lot of what I learned in the previous place um, that I was working, I wanted to bring some of those principles and ideas to the Los Angeles Times, and that's what what we're hoping to do. And do you think sports? When we were we were talking about this before the interview, that sports sometimes isn't considered news, right? It's almost considered separate, but sports is. And at least in my opinion, one of the ultimate forms of news, right? Because it's different people interacting, one space, live, it happens. And ESPN, you're kind of reporting more on live versus Los Angeles Times. It's almost, uh, you're both reporting on it, but it's passive, right? The event has happened and then you're telling it to people. Do you notice a difference in how kind of live news and live coverage of news versus reporting and the difference in that? Well, I, I think, you know, as it relates to the, the live thing that sports is, is is games, right? You know, you have live events, you have games. And so people are watching them, you know. Some some people are watching them on linear television. Some people are watching them on their phone. Uh, there are multiple screens going on because people are commenting and and interacting in real time. And so I think the, the live sports watching 
um, you know, has changed. You know, it's a different experience than it was when we just had television or you were at the event. And that's developed a whole culture around it. You know, it, it, a multiple screen culture and you and people get it, you know, they, they, they're debating and analyzing and doing this in real time. Uh, creating memes on social and, and reacting and arguing. Did you and, do the, the Manning Brothers for uh, Monday Night Football? Yes, love the Manning brothers. Uh, Simulcast, yes. So, um, but I think we're doing the same thing, right, in news. Because when something happens and there is a, whether it's Monterey Park shooting or let's just say, or or something less tragic like here's uh, the Grammys. Mm -hmm. You know, you're creating a lot of news organizations are essentially having a live blog kind of format, live updates where you're constantly giving people different takes and not just the awards, but you're, you're having commentary, you're dropping in uh, contextual content around it. And, and that's a kind of form of live coverage that's happening. And because I think that's what people demand now. I mean, no one's waiting for you to figure out what happened today and, and pick it up in a newspaper and read it. Now, some people still like that experience of reading it in the paper, but you want to know what's going on right away, and you have the ability because you will go on a social platform and you see how people are talking about it, and you're looking for that coverage in real time. Or you go on to latimes.com uh, and you want to know, wow, what? how are they covering this uh, tremendous story that's going on, the wildfire or, or something else that you heard about. So... I think there's a there are a lot of similarities there. Um, I think I think the audience demands whether it's sports or news, they demand to know now. Mm-hmm. And it, and if you're not if you don't have something for people now, you're you're out of that competitive conversation. So uh, quickly before um, you mentioned a lot about news story and news coverage. Is there something that is not currently being reported on that you believe that should be? What's is there a story that everyone's missing? You know, I yeah, it's hard to say is there anything anybody's missing because I think there's there's uh, there's coverage on a lot of things. So so to me, what are some of the most underreported stories? We we took on mental health as a subject broadly. Uh, the past year, and I think it's it is one of the the most underreported subject areas of our time because it intersects homelessness. You know, when we every time we have a mass shooting and we have a lot of them, all you got to do is just pull back a layer, you know, and you're going to get to some mental health dimension to it. You know, it 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 has a lot to do with its treatment and and family and, and just, um, you know, as a society, would, you know, how much money we spend on it. Um, uh, there's just, there's a lot there. And I, I don't think we understand it. And it's not all just the most egregious thing. Someone goes crazy and they, they, they kill a bunch of people at a school. But it's the everyday impact of depression and the things that we don't understand that well that we and, and and I think that we haven't we haven't spent enough time on it and so that's that's one I, I think uh, the 
the degree to which um, I think the you know I'm going to say fentanyl as a as a new kind of concern, but I think all of the the kind of manufactured drugs and the impact of them and and, and fentanyl being uh, the, the latest kind of uh, concern of what's being done with that drug. Um, I think it's another big, big topic. I, I, I think there's so many, right? I mean, you can go on and go on. I think the criminal justice system and, and what that does, the, the, the mass incarceration, the degree of which we, you know, have we looked at, um, you know, the number of people who are in and out of prison and the number of people who are still in prison and, and just the whole notion of punishment and, and rehabilitation and, and, and us as a larger society, what, what are we saying about the amount of money spent on incarceration and, and have we really examined that? Um, so there's just, there's just so many subjects. And then, you know, of course, I think another subject close to us because we're in the news is, is just the level of disinformation and misinformation and, and the impact that that's having on our society, the, the willful uh, misstatement of facts and, and the degree to which we don't have as news literate a society as we need to really be successful. As a journalist, you um, you encounter so many different stories and subjects. So I'm wondering, what is your definition or criteria for a good story? Well, a good story has to be a story, right? You know, and that that may seem like redundant, but but sometimes we have subjects, but we don't have a story. You know, and a topic is not a story, right? And 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 simply imparting information is not a story. And so I think a story has character. It has it has uh, a reason to exist. It has uh, uh, tension. It has um, you know it, it it often asks questions that make you ponder and think and and contemplate. Um, you know, and 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 I think a really really good story can is provocative, thought provoking, and I don't mean pro, provocative in it. As, as titillating, but but something that's going to be worth your time. You know, it's going to make you think, and and so I and I think we have to try harder, uh, all news organizations to to tell stories that people want to read. It doesn't doesn't do us any good to to write things that people don't want to read, or if not write them, put them in in any form where people don't want to consume them. And so uh, there's a lot that makes for a good story, but um, it's got to be a story. Awesome. Um, so in the ad talk today, you're going to talk about the reinvention of the LA Times. How would you define this reinvention? Well, I think we, we have to create something that's not a newspaper. You know, and in a newspaper, I say this with all reverence to it, a newspaper is where I spent most of my career in what we have defined as a newspaper, but it's it's not a very helpful noun for the times you're living in. Because think about it, what a, what we think about a newspaper. I think by definition, people think about something that's delivered to the door and they pick it up and they thumb through it. And I I still love it. It's beautifully curated. It's uh, expertly curated by by men and women every single day. Uh, it's a miracle. We used to call it the daily miracle. Um, 
but it's not useful for today because um, it today you need to reach people in so many different ways. One of the most successful things we have at the Los Angeles Times are guides. We call them point of interest, which is a, a template or, or, or guides. And so when we give you nine sandwiches that you need to eat right now in L.A., you know, or 50, the 55 best hikes in California, um, or the best places to listen to live music, um, or how to spend, if you want to escape to Palm Springs in a weekend, what to do, um, then we're being essential to you. Uh, we're being essential to how you live and every day. Um, when we do our journalism and we do these great, tremendous stories that we were just talking about, where else can people see them? Can we, can we bring them to uh, a different screen? Can we bring them to a streaming service as a limited series or as a documentary or uh, to the big screen even as a scripted project? We have to be able to do that. That's what a modern media company is. We have the journalism, we have the sourcing, we have the expertise, but then we have to bring it to other forms where people are. Um, we're, if, if everybody is on, uh, we have to have presence on, on Instagram and reach people a, in, a, in, a, in a way that they want to be reached. And so, you know, we created something called the 404, you know, which is uh, a social content creation teams. The first, uh, we hired our first head of, of uh, like content creation and, and we assembled this team and it, it includes a puppeteer, you know, uh, and, and a, a filmmaker. And, and so, and we initially called it a meme team, but, but, but yeah, they're creating, they're creating memes, but they're creating just interesting social content. Um, when we uh, had a, our TikTok presence was not very robust when I, when I got here. Um, but we hired, based on a suggestion, really one of our editors, our bureau, Washington bureau chief, had been seeing um, this uh, TikTok creator goes by the handle under the news desk, and uh, they were creating a kind of newscast literally under the desk to flip the notion that news for so long, people are above a desk and they're reading it and they're on, you know, they're on CNN and they're, you know, dressed in a nice suit and they're, and so he flipped that it, and it was, they were um, so popular, they had maybe like 1.6 million followers. We, we contracted with V and V took over our account. And it, 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 it grew by like 10, 12 fold in like six weeks just by us contracting. And, and now we've done other things. And so I say all I have to say is that there's a lot of ways you have to try to find audience. You create new products. We totally revamped our magazine. Image is a very kind of hip culture, cool culture magazine that we want to not just create as a magazine, but as a brand. That, that we'll do to go to pop-up events and show up at Art Basel and do cool things down there and, and it'd be a freeze week, and, and, um, uh, which was the art there that just happened. Um, and, and so we're, we're just developing new things in order to reach new audiences, newsletters, um, lots of other things. 
So quickly, for our last question, and what some readers might consider the most important question, you are not a native of Los Angeles, Uh but you are the executive editor of the Los Angeles Times now. Yes. Do you consider yourself an Angelino? I do. Okay. See? You heard it here. That's the answer. I do. Officially an Angelino. I I do. I do. Um, No, it, it feels very much at home. I will say this. My... I, I had residents of of uh, California and L.A. for uh, a long time, my sons. So they, they've been out here. So they've been residents. So I've, I've been able to kind of, you know, draft off of their excitement. And But I do. It feel, feels right at home for me. That's unfortunately all the time we have today. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.